and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Remco Hasen, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Western Australia School of Humanities, and Liam Kofi Bright, Assistant Professor of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method at the London School of Economics. We will discuss their article, Is Peer Review a Good Idea? which is published in the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science. So, Remco, Liam, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Thanks. It's so great to have you. I was super excited when my friend Matt Teichman alerted me to this article because it touches on a lot of areas uh, that I'm really interested in around uh, the production of scholarship and, and how we think about you know, how we kind of do scholarship institutionally. But for listeners who might not be so familiar with how that process works, in your paper, you ask whether peer review is a good idea. So what is peer review? How does it work? And what have other people had to say about it? So um, before the show, we said it might be good if uh, the dynamic would work if I go first and hand it over to Remco. So in the spirit of that, Remco, why don't you handle this one? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, great. Peer review is this um, really important uh, thing that we do to evaluate um, various bits of scientific work before we share them, basically. So this can, this can mean a bunch of different things, right? Depending on whether you're talking about uh, scientific manuscripts, we also peer review conference abstracts, grant proposals, and so on. Um, but our paper mainly focuses on uh, scientific manuscripts, right? So the idea is you have a, a manuscript, right? A, a piece of scholarship that you've written up and you send it to typically a scientific journal where you have an editor who then solicits these peer reviews, which then got um, written. So the peer reviews get written on your paper. Um, they get shared typically with the author. And then the editor makes a decision, possibly after some revisions, whether or not to publish this paper in their journal. Yes, so that's the peer review system in general. One thing that it's worth noting is uh, in the paper, we are, well, we should be careful to say, who knows if we are. Um, we, we, I think we're careful to say that we're interested in pre-publication peer review in particular, um, where this is uh, the process uh, Homeco just described um, happening specifically to decide whether or not a manuscript will be shared in this journal. Some forms of peer review can happen sort of after the manuscript has been shared by other means, and uh, we're not so opposed to that. You know, spoiler warning as to where we're going to go here, but we're not so opposed to those as we are to pre-publication peer review. How and why did peer review develop, and what do people have to say about it? I mean, why do people in general think that peer review is a good idea, or why do they maybe even not really think about it at all? So we don't say much about the history of the practice. If I recall correctly, um, there's an article we cite in there which traces the history back to uh, attempts by members of the Royal Society in Britain to sort of um, keep overview of scientific controversy in-house, so to speak. So rather than having the the king's censors read over manuscripts and see if they like them, they want to make the case that uh, 
scientists themselves could do this in a responsible manner. I, I, I think that was the history. Um, but as to why people like it in the contemporary era, I, you know, I think it's not controversial to say that many scientists or many academics more broadly, and not just that actual, but many journalists, science journalists and members of the public as well, take peer review to be something like quality control, where what peer review does is ensure that the articles which we are sort of signal boosting and placing some kind of uh, imprimatur of respectability upon by having them in scientific journals, that those articles are, you know, uh, well-constructed, the the methods of analysis and the arguments they use are plausible and rigorous and so on. So it, it just kind of like filters out bad work and ensures we can direct our attention to, to good work. Well, so in the paper, you note that the academic literature, ironically, on peer review is actually relatively sparse. I wonder why that is. I think part of it is that it's just really hard to study peer review empirically. Like one of, what, what you would ideally perhaps like to do for many of the sorts of questions that come up in this context is do like randomized controlled trials that people don't seem to be super willing to use their journal space for that. I think that's a big part of the issue. Yes, I, I, so I agree that um, there are some issues to do with like what people are willing to do and, and uh, spend their time on for the sakes of uh, gathering knowledge. And I also think it has something of the function of a sort of a common sense ideology, right? It just, it just seems kind of evident that of course, you know, what happens in peer review? Well, as, as co uh, described, we, we send a manuscript off to some of the scientists. They judge whether or not it's good. These are people who are experts in the field. So they're in a position to judge whether or not it's good. So, you know, of, of course that quality filters, what else would it do? And, and, and I think that also just leads to a certain degree of incuriosity among many people. Not me and Remco, though, we're great. <laughs> well, so in theory, peer review, as you say, is supposed to sort of accomplish this quality control goal. Is there any evidence that it's successful in achieving that goal? And what kind of costs, if any, might be associated? with peer review, as opposed to some other approach to thinking about filtering or, you know, providing quality control for scholarship? Yeah, I think the main um, empirical finding that sort of is sort of the headline here is that various people, when there has been empirical research on the quality of peer review, they've basically tried to um, operationalize the notion of quality that they have in mind and then sort of invariably have then found that under whatever oper operationalization they chose, there wasn't actually any evidence that peer review was really doing anything. So you basically end up with null results all over the place. And so you so the, the benefits of peer review are, um, let's say, unproven, right? We've, we've struggled to find any real substantive benefits in terms of um, sorting papers by quality, essentially. Um, whereas, yeah, as you said, the costs um, are quite large. The costs are financially really large, right? Because we have these journals that are um, taking up a lot of library research. That's fucking vampires. <laughs> right. Uh, so, there's, so there's a financial aspect. There's also this time aspect, right? If we're doing this thing, peer review, which takes up a lot of time, 
we would like to know that it's doing something because yeah, each individual scholar is spending a significant proportion of their um, unallocated time from the perspective of their university employer on this, this activity peer review that they could also be spending on, you know, reading more papers, uh, doing more studies, writing up things that they've done themselves and so on. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it was kind of noticing that disparity, which prompted us to to write a paper in the first place. Um, Remco and I had been working on related issues for a while, both together and individually. Um, and so we, we, we one day had a chat in a cafe in Germany, I believe, where we discussed, this is the before times, you could, you could do that. Um, and uh, we sort of, we noted together that this, you know, we, we'd both noticed that you just don't seem to find the benefits, whereas the costs are, are evident and immediate. And that was what got us thinking about, like, could you make a systematic case here that perhaps pre-publication peer review is, is, a, is a bad system? Well, I wonder if you could talk in a little bit more detail about the specific kinds of benefits that people kind of may institutionally have predicted peer review would produce, sort of how you would go about studying whether or not that actually happens and kind of what you see or sort of how you characterize the results that would emerge from studying those those kinds of you know idealized uh goals of peer review sure so one thing people have thought and you know in some cases a philosophically quite deep thought it can be sort of traced back to the work of kuhn in the uh mid-20th century so one people what what people have thought is that uh fields at least develop their own internal sense of standards what makes for good or bad work and peer experts are in a position to judge whether or not a given piece of work has actually attained uh, sufficient levels of quality and so at least within a given field you know talking to biochemists biochemists or maybe more specifically biochemists who focus on a particular aspect of biochemistry i don't know enough about biochemistry to say anything more specific than that but um you know so those people would be able to agree what constitutes good biochemistry um but in fact there have been uh sociologists have taken a look at whether peer reviewers tend to agree with each other or not basically whether or not they tend to um agree that a given piece of work is good or bad or how good or bad it is. And what they find is there, there is some ability to agree if a work is sort of exceptionally good or exceptionally bad, um, peer reviewers are able to coordinate and rule it out. But for the vast majority of work, um, there's no real consistent pattern of agreement. It turns out that we don't see people sort of coordinating on the internal standards of the field, allowing them to uh, judge a given piece of work. So that's an example of, you know, people expected that peer review would at least be able to pick out sort of the consensus standards of evaluation in a given field. And when we attempted to look for it, we just didn't find that. I say we, I mean, sociologists, we're philosophers, we don't do empirical work. Yeah. So if people want to follow up on that, the terminology that gets used is inter-rater reliability or inter-reviewer reliability. So if peer review isn't accomplishing the sort of 
positive sorting quality control type goals that we would hope that it would, what kinds of costs are associated with peer review? I mean, it seems like there might be a wide range of different potential costs. Yeah. So I already mentioned the financial costs, uh, which I think arguably probably the biggest of them all, um, because the way we currently do things with these for-profit journals, they're, they're absolutely ridiculously expensive, right? So if you... If you are an individual who's not associated with the university, you go to the webpage of a journal, scientific journal, and you want to read an arbitrary paper, they'll charge you like, what is it, like 50 euros or 100 euros, you know, really ridiculous sums that no one would be willing to pay to read like a 15-page paper or whatever. And if you're an academic library, right, who are the people that are actually typically paying these subscription fees, um, they're, they're charging, you know, like thousands per year for access to these journals. Whereas, you know, the research that goes into these journals has typically been paid for by either by the university themselves or by the governments of whichever country the people are in that are doing the research. So it's like the scheme is basically, right, people are doing research with public money, writing up that research with public money, then they give it to these journals who then sell it back to them for thousands of euros. So that's one aspect of the peer review system, which I think is really costly, which um, <clears throat> we might want to try to do something about. There's a bunch of other costs, but I think they sort of get dwarfed by this one. So one thing at least I, I would be inclined to worry about a lot, and we certainly lay a lot of stress about it, stress on it in the paper, is... Um, there's there's something uh concerning about if it's put it way, if it's true that um peer review scientific peer review prepublication peer review doesn't do a good job of actually filtering out the good papers from the bad but the community treats it like it does and you know we direct our attention to the work which is you know disproportionately we direct our attention to work in fancier journals and we make hiring decisions and um about decisions about how to allocate grant funding on the partly at least on the basis of track records of success in getting into these work in getting into these journals on the assumption that that's a sort of measure of of doing well of doing good work then you know there's just sort of large swathes of academic life um where we're sort of misallocating our time and resources or at least we're not don't have good reason to think that we're achieving the thing we're trying to achieve. And that, you know, has downstream effects on what, what science we do, um, what technologies we develop and, and so on, all sorts of social implications. And so there is, it's, it's a bit more nebulous. I agree than the, than the funding issue, although I'm really not a fan of funding public money to these for-profit journals. Um, but it, it nonetheless, I think is very severe cost. So in the paper, you suggest that some of the costs associated with peer review might have knock-on effects that sound in other areas where we have kind of normative goals that we want to advance in relation to, say, the distribution of information or equity or non-discrimination. How might some of those issues manifest themselves? Sure. So one thing 
um, I've been interested in some of my previous work is this kind of much reported fact that um, men tend on average to um, publish more papers than women tend on average to do in various of the sciences. And so it's been a sort of long running question as to why this is, especially since it turns out that this gap persists, even if you um, condition on a bunch of information, which people might have thought would explain it, you know, such as, um, you know, um, time, at least self-reported time, and then trying to make some allowances for the fact that men and women self-report their time differently, spent on housework or childcare or other jobs or teaching. And so things which you might think because of the way society is arranged, often in a sexist fashion, where women are going to have sort of social expectations that they use more of their time on those activities rather than science. Um that could be the explanation for why they then have less time to publish as much. But it turns out that even if you try and sort of fit men and women into bands where you're sort of thinking they have roughly about the same amount of time available to do science, they still, there's still a difference in how much they end up publishing. So once the sort of difference in ability to allocate time explanation has been taken away, um, a, a common explanation has been in terms of either bias in peer reviewers as in, so um, the peer reviewers sort of treat manuscripts by women more harshly, um, or expectations of bias um, leading women to have to sort of spend more time um, polishing their work, doing things to ensure their manuscripts are like really sort of beyond reproach in order to sort of overcome the hurdle they anticipate. And so for that reason, again, that takes more time. And so they're able to publish less papers in total. Um, there is some evidence which we go over in the paper that something like that is occurring. And so I, I find that credible. Um, and the point is then insofar as what's going on is um, women academics are sort of having to anticipate uh, prejudicial treatment from pre-publication peer reviewers before they can get their work out there. And then having less papers sort of looks bad on one CV. Um just getting rid of that pressure, basically not having, you know, no one has to jump the hurdle to get past peer reviewers. Uh, it would sort of remove this kind of arbitrary uh, sexist source of difference between men and women uh, in a way which we take would be beneficial on sort of general grounds of equity and also for the sakes of ensuring that ideas are being assessed fairly and so good for research overall. Yeah. And in some ways, it's kind of that point kind of generalizes, right? Because as you were saying earlier, if we think that there isn't too much in terms of real quality that the peer review system is picking up on, but we are allocating resources and so on, on the basis of where people get get, get published, then there will be a tendency for a lot of good work to be potentially overlooked or bad work to get attention for no reason. So there's in general, right, this, this sort of the way we reward people and promote people would be um, based on much thinner ground, I guess, than we would like to think. And so the meritocracy that we're supposed to have seems to be a bit of an illusion. Instead, we're just kind of arbitrarily promoting people and ignoring a lot of people for no good reason. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's just right. And why, and of course, it's, it's not like uh, we think that getting rid of um, peer review would sort of automatically 
automatically make a meritocracy snap into place after all. Far from it. I don't really think that's either of our goal even. It's just that it would be good to go on without self-delusion. You know, academics could achieve something like class consciousness and act, you know, with a clearer view of the world. That would be, I don't know, that would be nice. It'd be cool. It'd be swell. I'd like it. Well, so what's the alternative to peer review? I mean, what would academic publishing look like if it didn't have pre-publication peer review? Remco, fam, you got this. Go for it. I guess the way we envision it, we would like it to be possible for people to decide for themselves when their work is ready for public consumption, right? So rather than go into this sort of black hole of peer review where um, if it's anonymized peer review, you're often discouraged from sharing the work with other people while it's under review at a journal. Instead of doing that, when you're ready, you just post your work on a preprint server and have it available for everyone to see. So in that way, we have the work available when the authors themselves think it's ready rather than the editors and the reviewers. And then um, people can review it publicly, right? So the, the two big changes, we make this a bit more explicit in the, the preprint um, jury theorems for peer, peer review that we've been um, working on more recently. The, uh, the two big changes that, um, that this ultimately involves is a change from a closed to an open peer review system, right? So everyone can see what people are saying about a given piece of work. And from pre-publication, journal-solicited peer review, right, where there's this journal in place that goes and finds the peer reviewers, to a more crowdsourced system that's post-publication, right? So the paper is already public, and now we're going to have this review process whereby people are allowed to give their opinion. Anyone who wants to, basically, can give their opinion. So the system basically becomes a bit more organic and a bit more democratic, right? Because once something's out there, anyone can comment on it, anyone can use it. Yeah, basically that. So um, if we wanted to maximally put academics off our idea and ensure it will never get taken up, we'd call it sort of rotten tomatoes, but for papers. And I think that's what we actually do in the paper. So, Well, so one thing I can't help but wonder is why what you're proposing doesn't sort of happen on its own. I mean, there's sort of a notorious, like, undercurrent of dissatisfaction, I feel like, with peer review. I mean, like, reviewer two is a total meme, right? And there's all of these pre-print, like, sites out there in different areas of scholarship, like Sci-Hub and Research Hub and you name it, right? Why do we still have peer review if it doesn't make sense? So one thing, I think, for record, Sci-Hub isn't quite the same. Sci-Hub is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But rather than being its own um, preprint archive or something like that it's rather a place where you can gain access to things which have already been published in one of the the journals and so it's it's a bit different but on on the broader issue um i think there's a few things going on one thing we we think this trend is actually happening so one reason you say why hasn't it happened the answer is just it hasn't happened yet but it's in the process of happening and that's basically the 
various technological changes have made it much um, more possible and and easy for us to organize ourselves this way. And it's only recently that we're catching on and doing away with the the journal means of distributing our work and going to other means. Um, and and secondly, I, this is why it's sort of you know it's being a bit cheeky, but I, I did mean it. The point about class consciousness in terms of I just think there's a there's a widespread ideology amongst academics, which even though we grumble about peer review, people do think it's good and necessary. And so, it kind of it, it even though we grumble, it doesn't occur to many people that it could be different and it could be better, and we should arrange ourselves so as to make it better. So I, I think those you know partly it's just it's taking time, and partly there's this kind of psychological or sociological resistance to it, which needs to be resistance to the change, which needs to be overcome. Um, and then there are some genuine problems we think as well, but Rimpo, maybe you want to say something. Well, I think it's just really interesting on this point to note that there are really huge differences between academic fields on this particular point. Um, so I think you can sort of put, um, mathematics on one side here where they've had archive.org, the preprint server for, I think 30 years now, and they really do take it very seriously. Almost everyone puts their work on there. There is a kind of public notion of open post-publication peer review. There is actually less emphasis on the journals in maths nowadays compared to how it was before 1990. That's sort of one extreme, which is already approximating the sort of thing we're advocating for. And then on the other end, you have a field like um, history where it's really... Um, disqualifying to put your work on a preprint server. So like um, I wrote a history of science paper once and I sent it to a journal and I got a really angry review back that says, this paper is, on, is already published because I put it on a preprint server and it's even already been cited. So why should our journal publish this? There's no news value here. So that attitude, right, is going to, because put, putting your papers in journals is so important for scientific careers and so on. That's really going to put people off putting their stuff on preprint servers, obviously. Yeah. So there's, so the, I think that kind of variation is important. But, and, and so one thing I did want to mention as well, because we, it's important to acknowledge, you know, limitations in our own theses is at the end of our paper, we do discuss a couple of things which we take to be uh, real sort of genuine outstanding problems for moving away from pre-publication peer review. And so maybe, consciousness of these problems could be playing a role in making people sort of want to stick more to the old system. So one of those which we're less worried about is something like, you know, lots of non-academics or non-specialists in general, even academics in other fields or researchers in other fields, um, read academic work, you know, science journalists, civil servants in some cases, um, people in industry in some cases, and they're not always, you know, fully competent to assess the the details of the methodology, the experimental design, how the analysis was done, and, and so on. And so those people, like the, the thing peer review does is ensure that at least, you know, one or two or maybe three um, field or domain experts have overlooked this and thought it was okay before it comes out. And so it gives those kind of non-experts some guarantee that they can at least minimally trust this thing. So for reasons we can go into if you want, but you know, we, we don't think that's that's much of a problem. So we're not so worried about that. But people might be worried about that. Um the, the other issue which we think we have to admit is, is more of a problem is um there is this 
a thing called the Matthew effect, which is basically that, uh, you know, it's from, from the gospel of Matthew where I think Christ says to those that have more should be given to those that have not, that more should be taken away. And it's uh, coined by uh, the sociologist of science or sociologist who worked a lot on science, Robert Merton, um, where basically people who already a bit fancy small initial advantage in the scientific hierarchy prestige structure can be translated into ever more attention ever more prestige whereas you know if you if you have an unlucky early streak you take your career tends to get worse and worse or you get relegated to the lower leagues pretty quickly and the thought is that the journal system can actually provide a bit of an interruption on that because if i'm at a sort of very non-fancy position i'm not getting much attention from my work through connections or something like that i can place a paper in nature or in science and thereby sort of grab attention from my work i sort of i i borrow some of the accumulated prestige of nature and and have it invested in me and the thought might be that if we just have something like the system we propose where everyone could upload their paper on archive and comment on what they find interesting or respond to what they find interesting then there would be no means for sort of junior scholars to to make that kind of bid for attention. And so I think people sometimes are worried about that and there's good reason to be worried about that. And so that's another thing that might hold back the adoption of our utopian and objectively better system. Well, maybe we could talk about both of those in turn. I mean, when it comes to the first objection, you know, that that people who aren't field experts might be led astray by kind of lower quality scholarship. I mean, I wonder if peer review doesn't in some cases actually make the problem worse. I mean, sites like Retraction Watch suggest that peer review isn't necessarily all that effective all the time at weeding out bad work. And maybe the imprimatur of peer review leads people astray as well. Yo, what? You're a, you're a lawyer person, right? So when you say imprimatur, is that how you say that word? <laughs> say that again. Imprimatur. I might be pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> okay, thank you. Imprimatur. Okay, sorry, Remco, you take it. So we came across this quote that I really liked when we were doing research for this paper, which is that um, doing a peer review is neither a replication nor a lie detecting device, right? So just because you've done a peer review on a paper doesn't actually or the fact that a paper has been peer reviewed doesn't actually tell you as an outsider that it's necessarily based on like non-fraudulent research or that it will hold up to future research or anything like that, right? That's just not the sort of thing that peer review is actually capable of doing. So the, there's a sense in which this, this stamp of approval, this, uh, this imprimatur or whatever it's pronounced, um, is, um, you know, it's sort of promising quite a bit more than it seems to be able to deliver. So in that sense, there's actually a bit of a danger to having this system in that sense, because it sort of, it sort of seems to put people to sleep in a way. It gives them this, this illusion that they can trust this when actually peer review does not seem to actually have the ability to back that up. And likewise, I mean, I kind of wonder about this question of, peer review and the kind of journal hierarchy opening up the possibility of advancement to those who aren't otherwise getting attention. I mean, is there any evidence that that actually works or does 
peer review tend to redound to the benefits of those who who are already successful? Yeah, I mean, if if our paper could have a tagline, it would be, is there any evidence that this actually works, would would be a good tagline for the paper. Um, So, you know, in some sense, we kind of, you know, we we push for the stronger claim because we believe it. We think it's what the evidence supports on net right now. Um, But if people just took the weaker claim that, you know, more, much more research should be done on whether peer review is a good idea and we should be willing to act on it if it turns out the research comes up, no, that would be fine. And so, yes, this point about, you know, um, the sort of Einstein in the patent office then getting their paper in, in nature and being like, oh, wow, this Einstein chap's pretty smart. Uh, let's give him our imprimatur. To- oh, damn, I still can't do it. Um, you know, like, like that's pretty rare, but it's a hypothetical people will raise to you, we say from experience, if you propose getting rid of peer reviews. So we acknowledge the hypotheticals, you know, it's not outside the realms of possibility, but I don't recall finding much evidence of how often this happened, whether it was negligibly rare or a reasonably common thing. On the contrary, right, there is good evidence that peer review is also itself a sort of system that exhibits prestige bias. And so the, I think we, we really say sort of two things in response to this worry about the strength and Matthew effect. One is that, you know, we'd like to see a clearer evidence base that a journal-based system would actually be on the whole better with regard to prestige bias than uh, an alternative like the one we propose. And the other point in response is, look, if you think the Matthew effect is so bad and it's such a problem, which I'm actually very sympathetic to, then like really targeted interventions at trying to promote the work of unknown scholars would be really important. And sort of having it as this sort of accidental feature of journals seems like quite a roundabout way to go about that particular goal. That's really the thing you care about. Well, so you propose that instead of having pre-publication peer review, we should have post-publication peer review. What does that mean? What, what would it look like? And why do you think it would be preferable? I'll let Remco take this up, but I'll just note that um, post-publication peer review is one of those things which is, firstly, it's, it's not the only thing we think should be, in, I mean, I guess post-publication peer review by definition couldn't be the only thing that was in place, but, you know, it's part of a, 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 a sweep of changes we wish to make. And so people should check out the especially the preprint paper that will be in the show notes. Um, And secondly, post-publication peer review is already the norm in some fields. So it's not the system Remco is about to aptly and ably describe in that charmingly Dutch manner of his is like a real life system, which, which, you know, it exists and it works. And so it's not just a hypothetical thing. Okay. um, Take it away, Maestro. Well, in some sense, post-publication peer review is just a thing that you get sort of naturally, if you let people publish their work whenever they want, and then you assume, which I think it's reasonable to assume, that scientists are still going to have opinions about each other's work, and they're going to share them with each other, right? So regardless of the details of how you organize this, post-publication peer review is just people giving their opinion on the work that's out there and talking to each other about whether it's good or bad and what could be improved about it and so on. So that's essentially what post-publication peer review comes down to. And then it's a question of how you organize that exactly. So, but I mean, I take it the thing worth mentioning is some fields have sort of quasi-formalized this into journals, which essentially play the role of if eventually, you know, um, a consensus emerges that some paper or set of papers have been especially noteworthy, 
then the they will appear in one of these journals which collects such things and it's a kind of feather in one's cap so to speak or a way of further signal boosting them um but you know doing so as a result of longer term community discussions after it's been widely available so i mean i get the sense that what you're suggesting is that maybe it's better to kind of let a thousand flowers bloom and let the scientific community decide what's good once it's published rather than cull papers before publication in the fear that you know people won't see them in the first place and that the risk is what, that we might miss really good work by by using peer review to prevent it from getting proper distribution yeah that's exactly right the the thought would be that why would you have one or a few editors and maybe their their peer reviewer friends decide what stuff is worth our attention when we can just all look at it and form our own opinions and have a sort of essentially democratic system where scientific community as a whole form their opinion on the stuff that's out there and what they think is important. Yeah. Remco, Liam, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I love this paper. I'm really looking forward to reading your follow-up paper. And I loved the closing line where you observed that the best thing we could say about peer review is that it often fails to get in the way. Well, thank you for having us on, Brian. I appreciate you telling me how to pronounce imprimatur or whatever it was. Yes, we learned something today as well. (laughs) 